Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be hearing about the problem of preventable accidents. I think there's considerable progress now. I would say 10 years ago, most ministries of health would have considered violence and injury as a not public health issue. And finding out the trouble with female sexual dysfunction. Trying to understand and define exactly what this thing called female sexual dysfunction is, is a very complex task and it's taking a long time to get the, the, the right answers. But first of all, I'm joined by Ad Davies, BMJ's careers editor, who's here to talk about the BMJ Careers Fair that happened this weekend. So Ed, what is this careers fair all about? Uh, the National Careers Fair in London on Friday was a chance for uh, students, junior doctors and senior doctors as well to uh, basically review their options. Um, it was A lot of it was done in conjunction with the London Deanery, um, and so there were talks uh, by the London Deanery, but also just wider, wider people, companies, groups who uh, may be of interest to doctors. So we had talks ranging on everything from specific foundation place uh, programmes for next year to much wider things such as what do I do if I hate medicine and want to get out of here. Sure. Um, and as you said, there were lots of talks going on. Was there anything particularly interesting? That's right. Uh, I think it depends a lot on uh, what you're interested in. I mean, for a, a doctor embarking on their career, it's probably very different from a doctor towards the end of their career, but hopefully there's something for everyone there. Um, we have a large exhibition as well where employers and, uh, and interest groups come and um, present their wares. So you could find everything from a job in Saudi Arabia to a, a job with the Medical Women's Federation for, from the exhibition. Sure. And you did some interviews with, with some of the people giving talks. Um, did you find anything out particularly? Uh, yeah, uh, we got a broad range of interviews, which will be up on the uh, website shortly, looking at all sorts of different things. Again, it's 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 a broad church that we have there. So on the one hand, we looked at clinical leadership and how, how that's impacting medical practice these days. And then in more detail, we looked at specialist training applications for this year, both in the London Deanery and across the wider country to see how they're going to pan out this year. And I think that that's always something that uh, junior doctors have a lot of interest in. Sure. And that's all up on the Careers Fair website at careersfair.bmj.com. That is indeed. Last week saw Safety 2010, the international conference looking at injury prevention. Stopping avoidable injuries may not naturally seem part of the medical world's remit, but healthcare systems have to deal with the fallout from them. The WHO have a Department of Injuries and Violence Prevention to tackle the problem, And at the conference, I caught up with their director, Dr. Etienne Krug, to find out why we've been so slow to recognise this as a public health problem. There's things like violence prevention, violence against women, that might not naturally seem to be a public health issue. Is there work being done to to help frame that as a public health issue? I think there's considerable progress now. I would say 10 years ago, most ministries of health would have considered violence and injury as a not public health issue but a problem for other ministries. I would say now almost all ministries of health and many schools of public health or of medicines are addressing the issue. It's recognized that they affect people and their health. It's the 10, uh, sorry, 10% of the deaths in the world are due to injuries. Uh, it's more people are killed from injuries than from HIV, malaria and TB combined. So it's undeniably a public health issue and it's also recognized that public health can contribute by improving data collection, addressing some of the risk factors such as alcohol abuse, uh, improving services for the mm-hmm. victims, etc. So we are making good progress in that area. Etienne's department at the WHO have published a booklet, 
Injuries and Violence, The Fact. In it, they present some of the data on causes of death by age group. What's shown is surprising. Preventable injury, particularly road traffic accidents, are the leading cause of death in the young. I spoke to Professor Fred Rivara from the School of Public Health at the University of Washington about the true cost of injury and how those rates are affecting global health. For children under 14, road traffic accidents are the second biggest killer, drowning's the fourth, yet you don't really hear that much about them. Um, There's been a lot of attention, and I think rightfully so, on the whole problem of child survival and child mortality. Now, most of that's really been focused on children under five. And in 1990, I think there were 16 million deaths per year of children under five. Now it's down to 7.7 million in 2010. Those deaths clearly were largely preventable. Um, They're due to infectious diseases, they're due to perineal asphyxia, they're due to prematurity. Um, And so the world has really focused on those rightfully. But as those problems come under better control, and as countries' GDP increases, there's really an epidemiologic transition going on. So the infectious diseases causes go down, and then problems like injuries become more prominent, and um, they account for a much larger portion of the deaths. And for example, in a country like Bangladesh, which we usually associate with um, low-income high rate of infectious diseases. If you look at their mortality statistics in kids one to four years of age, drownings now account for 40% of the deaths. So there is this epidemiologic transition going on in many countries of the world. And I don't think that the um, people in, for example, the the Gates Foundation, um, many parts of WHO have really understood yet that epidemiologic transition going on and the increasing importance of injury problems that will occur. Sure. I so think there is this Millennium Development Goal on um, child survival under, right, under five. Under five. And it's I think, not going to be possible to meet that right. without. And I think that in, in terms of trying to meet that goal, we really are going to have to now transition from exclusive focus on infectious diseases to a problem to include injuries in a problem who really are going to reach the Millennium Development Goals. And I think that, that secondly, we ought to think about um, not just the injuries under five. We really need to think about, as you point out, the five to 14-year-olds. And if you really are talking about childhood injuries, you need to include the teenagers, the 15 to 19-year-olds. And in those age groups, in 15, 19-year-olds, clearly injuries are the leading cause of death by far and away in all countries of the world, high-income countries, middle-income countries, and low-income countries. And so that as the world tries to decrease overall child mortality, improve child survival, injuries need to be a really important part of that. Sure. And a while ago, you wrote an editorial about saving a million lives a year. And and the point of that editorial was um, to point out that the, just like in the child survival revolution, the means to save many lives are already available. With the injury problem, the means to save many lives is already available. So by just doing some really fairly simple calculations, we felt that of the five million people a year who die from injuries, easily one million could be saved by things that we already know. People in Bangladesh, for example, have shown that um, teaching kids how to swim is really very effective in preventing from drowning. We know that 
putting safe stoves and safe lighting in households can decrease fire and burn deaths. We know that having some rudimentary trauma care in many countries of the world can markedly improve survival from injuries, particularly motor vehicle crashes. Those known interventions you're talking about there, they don't sound particularly expensive. They aren't, and there's been um, the um, Disease Control Priority Project has looked at this and the cost um, in terms of dailies saved and things like, for example, speed bumps. They're enormously cost-effective. Um, as cost-effective as doing vaccines in, in people. So teaching kids to swim um, in Bangladesh, it's estimated it costs about a $1 to $5 to teach a child to swim. So those kinds of interventions can be extremely cost-effective in terms of preventing child mortality from injuries. So the means are available to accomplish major goals, and I think our task at a conference like this this week is to really try to come up with some really concrete plans that we can take to policymakers and say, if you do this, that will happen. Next Monday, female sexual dysfunction is going to be debated at the BMJ. Four experts in the field will talk about the extent to which this is a real problem and how much is created by industry. In this week's BMJ, Ray Moynihan and Sandy Goldbeck-Wood discuss different aspects of the condition and they both join me on the phone today. First, Ray Moynihan. Ray is a lecturer at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and he's written a book looking at the issue. Ray, in your book, you talk about female sexual dysfunction and how that's been, uh, how industry has sort of built it. It's such a catch-all term. What is actually meant by that in this context? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Trying to understand and define exactly what this thing called female sexual dysfunction is, is a very complex task and it's taking a long time to get the the, the right answers. Sex researchers have been investigating this for for quite a long time. There is a a technical definition in the, you know, in the manual, the DSM, that includes uh, sub-disorders of desire, arousal, orgasm and pain. But the definitions are extremely controversial, there's a lot of debate about them, and they're constantly changing. Sure. And that's what your book and the debate that you'll be having on Monday at the BMJ is about. It's uh, the sort of medicalization of, uh, of a potentially normal state. Um, are you saying that you know, this entire problem is is almost made up by industry, or is it more of a of a hyping of something that a few people may have, but the vast majority won't? Well, well, I think I think it's the latter. That the, there's no sense that drug companies invent or create diseases. They they, they just don't. Um, what uh, I have discovered in the journalism that I've been doing for you know quite a while now. Are looking at pharmaceutical marketing strategies, looking at the way the, the the medical profession is entangled with the industry, what that journalism has you know, uncovered is an incredibly close working relationship between drug company staff and sex researchers, other researchers across many different specialties. Um, and if you look closely enough, you, you, the, the boundaries between the industry and, and the research community start to blur and you can't really work out 
where, where the marketing activities stop and the independent science begins. And that's what uh, the story of female sexual dysfunction is that, that, that is told in Sex, Lies and Pharmaceuticals. It's, it's a story of the way in which the marketing is, is blurring so much with the science that we don't really know exactly how many women suffer from a genuine medical disorder that may require some sort of treatment um, because all of the, the processes are so entangled uh, that it's very difficult to get uh, reliable answers. Okay, so this is really coming down to a lack of good research and good data. Well, well, well I mean, there is, there is good research out there and there, and there is some data out there. A lot of the, the sort of industry-associated research asserts that there is a, a condition called HSDD, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and that research often asserts that uh, that affects one in ten women, perhaps. Uh, a lot of other research questions whether such a disorder of low desire really even exists at all. The problem with a lot of the marketing is that that uncertainty and that controversy is often left out of the marketing. Um, if you drill in to the scientific literature on this, you find an extraordinary level of debate and uncertainty, uh, which, of course, is, is the lifeblood of good science. Next, Sandy Goldbeckwood joins me. Sandy's the editor of the Journal of the Institute of Psychosexual Medicine. Sandy, Ray's coming at this from an academic and a journalistic side, but you're a clinician. What's your take on it? Coming at it from a clinical perspective, I am aware of just how difficult it is for doctors faced with a woman in the consulting room who is very distressed, um, has got to the point of coming to talk to her doctor about her sexual problems um, and uh, is possibly worried that her marriage is on the rocks because uh, the sexual problem's been going on for a long time mm. uh, and really wants an urgent, quick solution. And so um, I really understand why doctors feel under tremendous pressure to offer something. Sure. And, and I suppose why um, pharmaceutical industry is, is so keen to provide something. That's right. I mean, from their point of view, it must look like an untapped market. And I think it is a real problem. Um, doctors are seeing real women with real sexual distress. We can't just uh, dismiss the problem. I think, from my point of view, what we need to do is think in a more realistic way about it. Viagra and other erection-enhancing drugs have had a, a big impact on male sexual dysfunction. Do you think we'll see or we'll ever see a, a little blue pill for women? Such evidence as there is, um, the evidence which has actually asked women about their own sexual experiences rather than generalising from uh, male sexual function, shows that women think differently and experience things differently. For example, they make much less of a distinction between um, desire and arousal. Uh, these things are much more part of a continuum as women describe their sexual experiences. Mm. Um, whereas with men, it is easier to think um, in biological terms about the neurovascular aspects of penile erection. Um, so, as I say, the evidence is poor 
Um, but such evidence as we have points more strongly in the direction of a more broadly based approach. So if the pharmaceutical industry is not going to be able to uh, create just such a simple pill, how do you think this will be treated in the future? I think that we really need to draw on um, the two different skills and traditions, one of which is organic medicine and the other of which is skills that come from psychotherapy. Now, those are two worlds um, that um, have different uh, ways of working clinically and different research traditions. Um, And I think that um, it's very important that there is um, a very active collaboration between those two worlds, both at a clinical level within the individual doctor and at a research level uh, between researchers. That's all for this podcast. Next time we'll hear the story of Reboxetine and the difficult-to-get data. Join us then.